Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to learned economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from our website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor weeks news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 37 in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, October the 13th. First, I'll be talking to Robert Wilkinson, the CEO of Cyber Marathon Solutions, about cybersecurity. And I'll be talking to Rabobank economist Michael Ivory about China's economic and market challenges. But first, let's talk to Robert Wilkinson. Rob, what are the most common forms of security breaches? I mean, there are a few relatively common ones, but depending on which publications you read, you know, the, the top three are usually credential theft, so that's where someone comes along and uh, steals your logins, essentially. There's ransomware, which everyone's pretty familiar with these days. And uh, the, the latest kid on the block, I guess, is uh, supply chain attacks, where you don't necessarily get attacked directly yourself, but someone in your supply chain gets attacked, which then leads to an attack on you. So those are kind of the three big ones that companies are trying to prevent or mitigate against generally at the moment. And they, those three kind of change every year. So you know, a couple of years ago, credential theft was probably the, the biggest one and ransomware was on the way down, but it, it swings around about this year. It seems that uh, ransomware is on the, the way back up and credential theft is slightly down, but you know, they're, they're all fairly prevalent and out there in the world. I've noticed uh, phishing is very big too. Yep, so phishing is one of the, one of the mechanisms for credential theft. So there's a, a couple of primary mechanisms for credential theft. Phishing is definitely one of them. The other one is where you get breaches of third-party websites. So that those are the two primary ways that you get credential theft is you know, either someone nicks a bunch of credentials from a website or you get a, a lot of phishing attacks. And phishing attacks have been fairly steady, I guess, over the last three or four years at least. And they don't seem to be going anywhere. You know, there's, they're, they're becoming less effective over time as people become more aware of them and there are more education pieces out there on phishing attacks, but they are still you know, very prevalent. The issue with phishing attacks is you just don't respond. You don't click, you don't phone or anything like that. But that'd be nice if that's what was actually happening. But uh, I, I think... So there's a lot of um, statistics around, and once again, it depends on what you read, but there's a statistic that seems to say that one of them, I think it was the Verizon report, said that something like 70% of people actually open the emails, and you get roughly a 4% click-through rate. So if you're sitting there, you know, sending out thousands upon thousands of phishing emails, then a 4% click-through rate is actually not too bad. Now, what about passwords? Are they at risk? 100%. 
So because credential theft or password theft is one of the very big breach types that you get these days, it's a, a continuing battle, I guess, for IT teams and businesses to, to try to get people to, to secure their passwords better. It doesn't really help too that in a lot of cases, the, the type of advice that you get can vary. So, you know, but for instance, there's a, a couple of different types of advice around on what makes a good password. So you know, the, the, the traditional password management methodology was you always looked at uh, how long a password was, whether it's got an expiry and how complex it was. Now, that was the orthodoxy for a very, very long time. And that's how most organizations and most applications secure passwords. Um, however, recently, there's been a, a bit of a shift in thinking and a, a number of you know, reasonably large organizations like uh, NIST in the US, for instance, and Microsoft even, have come out and said, well, that may not be the best way to secure passwords anymore. You know, in, these, in this day and age, what you might be better off doing is coming up with potentially shorter passwords. So Microsoft recommends shorter passwords because people will remember them. They still recommend some complexity in the passwords. And they also talk about not having them expire. The reason why they say that type of stuff, though, is because you know, people are people. If you have to sit there and remember, a whole bunch of different passwords that are a mile long, then you're going to try and make it as simple as possible for yourself. And what happens is, is that when you have those long passwords, you make them pretty simple. So reasonably easy to guess or reasonably easy for a machine to guess. And then every time you need to change it. So if you've got a rule that says it has to be changed every 30 days, what people will usually do is just go in and have the exact same password and just change one of the numbers, which is also very obvious and makes it very easy for them to be cracked. If someone's already got them, they can just have a guess at what the next number is in the line and they still stay attached. So yeah, there's a lot of different uh, approaches these days to how you can secure passwords, but it's, it's more of a, so passwords are a, a massive thing in that you, know, you, you have to look at it as a, a system rather than just, you know, I've got a good password. You have to have a password these days that's matched with multi-factor authentication or it's not really worth much. Um, you need to have user education to tell users you know, why it's important to have a password that is unique for whatever the service is that they're looking at rather than spreading it across every single thing that they'd ever log into. And you need to be able to go to people and say, well, this is how you come up with a good password. This is how you secure it. You need to have the software there like uh, password managers so that people don't have to remember a million and one passwords. It's, um, it's quite an industry these days. But uh, the issue too, though, is, uh, I mean, are there security options other than passwords? There are. I, I suspect, though, that passwords are not going away anytime in the near future, but there are obviously alternatives. So most people will be familiar with biometric identification from their phones. So whether that's fingerprints or whether it's face scans, that type of stuff, that's popular. Although what you'll find is, is that you'll usually have a password associated with the account as well, in addition to the biometrics. You can have tokens, so uh, multi-factor tokens. You know, those, um, I don't know if you remember the, uh, the little things you stuff in your key ring that have the, the random numbers that pop up all the time. They, they can be used in addition or um, separately to passwords. And you can have, in some corporate settings, you can set it up so that uh, if you have a, a digital certificate, for instance, that is on your machine that will authenticate you to whatever service that you're, you're talking to, that takes the password out of the equation as well. Although that type of approach isn't nearly as prevalent as passwords or biometrics. So what is Microsoft ATP? What is it and why do we need it? 
So ATP is a, a collection of different technologies. So ATP itself stands for um, Advanced Threat Protection. And it comes in a, a bunch of different flavors from Microsoft. So there's Windows Defender ATP, which is a um, uh, an endpoint protection. So that's a, a fancy name for a souped up uh, antivirus, I guess. What, what ATP on your endpoint can do are things like vulnerability assessments. So in addition to providing antivirus, it can also have a look at what you've got on your machine. Uh, it can tell you whether you've got out-of-date applications that aren't patched correctly. You can use the uh, built-in AI in Windows Defender ATP, which allows you to spot threats that are emerging. So a lot of antivirus is based on what's been seen in the past, whereas some of the new types of applications like ATP can have a look at behaviors of applications and start doing things when the behaviors look a bit strange. And that's what Windows Defender ATP can do. It can help security staff and IT staff by keeping track of what happens on a machine and then starting to categorize some of the things that it sees. Because I mean, if, if you imagine you're, you're a, a business owner, you've got a hundred odd machines out there and they're all trying to force feed a, a bunch of stuff to your IT team saying, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. You can start missing things. And what ATP can do is it can start prioritizing those things and make it a lot easier and quicker to respond to them. It does a lot of automation and you can integrate it specifically with other applications as well. So there's some APIs that come with uh, Defender ATP that let you integrate with your security systems or with your uh, IT ticketing systems. In addition to that, there's a couple other versions of it. There's uh, ATP for identity is another one that Microsoft has. And what that does is it allows you to create smart rules based on scenarios when it comes to identity. So before when we were talking about um, passwords and MFA and things like that, the, the simple way is you just apply a blanket across to absolutely everything that, that you want to secure. With um, ATP for identity, what you can do is you can be a bit smarter about it and say, well, I only want to apply MFA to someone who is logging in from a, um, a device that we've never seen before, for instance, and any other time we just trust that they're in the correct place. So how do we get it? I mean, does Microsoft provide that for everyone or how, do we have to subscribe to it or what? Yeah, it, it's a subscription service. So uh, as with um, pretty much everything that comes out of Microsoft at the moment, uh, it's all based on the, the Microsoft or Office 365 systems. So it's just another subscription that you can bolt on to your base Microsoft 365. You know, the, the thing where you get your email and you, you get your um, Office yeah. application, just a, an extra license that tacks on the top. Okay, so broadly, how do we stop uh, data breaches? Uh, there's a number of, it's not one uh, silver bullet, unfortunately. That, that question is kind of a broad one, but uh, it comes down to having a, a plan to start with. You know, it's a, a multi-layered approach. Probably at the, at the beginning, it's more around the, the user uh, education piece. Um, that's what most companies skip to their detriment. You know, you, you need to make sure that the user's have an understanding of what are the types of issues that they may face because I mean, not everyone's an IT person, right? It's, it's going to be a, a surprise to some people how easy it is to actually breach an organization based on working through a user. And I, you, you hit the nail on the head, you know, phishing is the prime example there where unless you're constantly aware that it might happen and you're looking out for it, then you're quite possibly going to miss it. So education is a, a good place to start. Um, education means that you know it, it's telling the user that the organization is 
is serious about IT security. It reminds people that they need to be careful continuously, so it's always front of mind. It gives them an idea around what types of attacks that they might encounter in the day to day. And it, it, in a lot of cases, it's also a requirement for cyber insurance. But then on top of that, you've got all your, your technical mitigation strategies like implementing multi-factor authentication, which these days is a, a very baseline requirement. I mean, at Microsoft a few years ago estimated that something like 99.9% of credential theft attacks can actually be protected against just with MFA. So yeah, it's it's a combination of those soft strategies and the technological strategies, which is going to keep people safe. And it's for the most part, you know, it, it's similar across industries, but it, it really depends on what your risk profile is as to how far down that rabbit hole you need to go. Right. Well, Robert, that is fascinating stuff and people will find it very, very useful. And thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. And now let's talk to Rabobank economist, Michael Ivory. Well, Michael, uh, what's happening with China's stock market? Uh, UBS is saying it looks like it's bottomed out, but I don't see that happening because of the uh, pro- problems with the economy. Yeah, I mean, I pay no attention to what anyone says about the Chinese stock market. It hasn't interested me for years, and I've only had one tune to sing through the entire period, which is don't get involved with it, it'll end in tears. And uh, that's where we are now. So, so, so the problems are continuing with the property market there? <laughs> Well, very much so. Uh, I think the killer statement, which again, was never very hard to predict looking back, if you wanted to, came from the deputy head of their statistics service recently, former deputy head, apologies. And he came out and said that there's more property in China than people, that even with a population of 1.4 billion, and in past conversations, I've mentioned they don't have 1.4 billion, it's lower than that. Um, But even with an official population of 1.4 billion, they're overbuilt massively overbuilt and uh, one quote that i saw although that wasn't the main headline was that they built enough for more than two billion people it's not like the australian property market where you've got ridiculous prices but ridiculous shortages for people wanting to get a roof over their head you've just got ridiculously too many homes now there are one or two places where people would like them like beijing shanghai but almost everywhere else you've got too many homes too expensive and not enough people. And so so it's overbuilt, overproduced, generally. Yeah, totally. And, and it has been screamingly obvious to anyone who wanted to look that was the case for the longest time. Um, I mean, years ago, I did a very, very simple exercise. I just took the official number of meters squared that were under construction, which is one of those nice kind of Soviet metrics that China... Uh, used to produce very diligently and I think it's and I looked at all the meters squared being built and I just thought how many meters squared do you need by by household size like x and I divided it by the number of households in China and you found out they already had too many then <laughs> so it, it's not difficult to do anyone could have done it they just didn't want to because they were all chasing phantom profits that were just going to come flowing in which is how stock markets often work and it's not a uniquely Chinese issue we're seeing the same thing you know, bubble after bubble in the West. But this time it was very, very obvious. And people tried very, very hard not to see. The China's economy is very much built around production, isn't it? And that, that it's very much a reflection of that, isn't it? It is. And obviously production of property in this particular case. Although where you're seeing an interesting dichotomy there is that Xi Jinping's, you know, 
command from on high for a long time now has been that property is supposed to be for living in, not for speculating. And he doesn't actually believe property is something that should be overproduced. He's in favor of goods. So if you want to make television sets or cars or electric vehicles uh, or steel, fantastic. Property, not if you're buying it, just on the belief that the price will go up, which is, of course, still a religion in the West. Uh, but it's one that Xi Jinping is trying to disavow China of. And I mean, you've got, and you've got heaps about the problems here. You've got uh, youth unemployment's around 20% now. We don't know. Um, the last official figure we had was just north of 20. But, you know, the long and the short of it is, and you've heard me say this many times, there's nothing new I'm saying here. China's problems were imminently forecastable and predictable, and some of us did. It still has some remaining strengths. It's not that everything has gone wrong everywhere at once, but it has really a bucket list of enormous structural problems, which any economy with any level of development located anywhere would struggle to overcome. And, you know, China has its own specific amplifiers to those problems, domestic and external which make it even harder for it to deal with. What are those amplifiers? Well, domestically, you have an ideological bent, which makes it even harder to undertake the one set of policies which, on paper, would help from here, which would be to transfer wealth to households so that they spend more. But, you know, report after report states that Xi Jinping doesn't want to see that, that he believes that's a decadent Western model of growth based on consumption rather than production. So it's hard enough to achieve that rotation to consumption if they wanted to. This is no easy thing to do because of vested interests. Um, but in China's case, they don't even want to do it officially. So that's going to make it very, very hard to achieve. And externally, I don't think I need to, to really paint that picture too clearly for anyone. Every, everyone's aware of the fact that even in areas where China is strong, for example, exports of electric vehicles, supposed free traders like the European Union are turning around and saying, thank you, we'll uh, make our own. We don't want to buy it from you. Thank you very much. So there's not a lot going right. And you have to be, well, certainly very optimistic or very brave to look at where we are and think with the, the confining strictures of what I just put in place that you can get back to a a rapid growth pace again in the future, because I don't think you can. There's a lot of talk in China about stimulus for the economy, but um, none of it seems to be going to consumers. Well, there is stimulus. There are a series of very, very small measures. And cumulatively, they don't add up to nothing, but they don't add up to anywhere near what is required to solve this problem. And as I just stated, if you were looking at it, you know, like from outer space, you'd know what you needed to do. But as I always say when we talk, the same is true for every political economy. I, you know, I could give you three or four bullet points now of what Australia needs to do to start trying to improve things. It'll never happen. So, I mean, so the, the problem is it is very much a political economy. So what does that mean for Xi Jinping politically? Well, his priority at the moment is the uh, security of the CCP which, by the way, is, the true, is, is true for every CCP leader. It's this, that she has inherited uh, the hand whereby 
all the Western style marketization has all gone bad at the same time. All he's going to do is ensure the stability of the party and this party rule and his own stability within the CCP. So growth comes second, third, fourth, fifth, wherever it needs to come to, political and national security come first. And again, I don't blame him. But political and national security means the preservation of the CCP and his regime. Yeah, that's what I just said. It doesn't mean GDP. We like to tell ourselves it did, but they never said that. I mean, geopolitically, that, that has huge issues, doesn't it? In terms of why, China why, trade? Why do you think everyone's rearming like stink? Why do you think Australia's bear-hugging the US and letting the US, you know, sell it nuclear submarines and possibly even hosting, you know, US nukes at some point in the future if you, if you, if you, if you read some tea leaves? Why do you think that's all happening? It's not for nothing. It's a reflection, A, of the Ukraine war, but B, of a general recognition that in a security-first, national security-first environment, you have to change how you do things. And I understand it's deeply unpleasant to hear that if you're a certain breed of politician or a certain breed of market investor or a certain breed of businessman. I get that. I really do. And I'm sympathetic, but it doesn't change the way the world is. Which is why the US now, when they're talking about... um when the Republicans are talking about uh, cutting back on aid for Ukraine, they're talking about we need to focus on China. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Completely. You know, some of them you might say on the US side are doing it with a bit more malicious intent and others are just saying, look, we've only got so many bullets in the gun and if we keep literally firing them at Ukraine, we can't have them ready when needed, you know, potentially to ward off threats in Asia. I mean, that's the open debate. And it's one that Australia really should be part of too, because if push comes to shove, you're in the region and the US isn't. Clearly, the powers that be at a very high level think that things need to change. I don't think all politicians have grown up and realized how serious things are yet. They haven't smelled the coffee. And a swathe of the business community, both in the US and in Australia, has not the foggiest idea of what's actually going on in the world. And we'll find out the hard way if we continue to walk down the path we are at the moment. But, you know, we'll get there when we get there. uh, And we'll see how people react when we do. But this is quite significant for the global economy because China is a major trading partner, most of the global economy. It is. And it's already buying less from all of them, give or take. Chinese exports have been negative year on year for a long time now. I've made that point to you before. Everyone's saying, well, China's going to add to GDP growth globally. How? How do you think that happens if they buy less every year, which is what they're doing at the moment? There's no logic to that statement when people make it. But uh, are they trying to export a lot to other people? Sure. 
they're still really keen to sell as much as they can do because that's the production that they've got excess of. But as was very, very easy to predict, other countries are saying they don't want to buy, they want to make their own. Um, that's the zeitgeist. And and certainly uh, when uh, inflation was and, and when, when global economy was struggling, they were buying less. Well, yeah, I mean, global trade, I saw in the Financial Times yesterday, is collapsing at the fastest pace since the, uh, it's either COVID or the GFC, one or the other. Both of them are pretty shocking comparators. But that's what happens when you have more and more countries saying, let's make it at home. Uh, and, you know, China also saying, let's buy less from the world. You're going to see global trade shrinking. That's just inevitable. And the world has yet to realise this problem with China is going to have major ramifications globally. Well, I think the smart money realises it. But, you know, in any market, you get the smart money, the, you know, the dumb money and the lying on its back smelling of rotting fish money. And, you know, you just got to think which one of the three camps are you in? Uh, how can you try and make sure that you're, you know, that you're a bit less fishy and a, and a bit more of a thought leader? Okay. Well, Michael, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You're very welcome. Have a nice day. So what's happening in the news? Well, Australians devote a greater share of their income to mortgage repayments than any other advanced economy, the IMS has revealed. As it downgraded its forecast for the local economy and warned inflation will be higher than previously thought. In its latest World Economic Outlook, the IMF said chances of a hard landing for the global economy had receded as the world remained on track for a soft landing scenario where inflation returned to central bank targets without a major downturn in activity. A new analysis released on Tuesday, the IMF showed that debt servicing ratios had increased sharply in economies like Australia, where the majority of households had variable rate mortgage. The share of income lost to mortgage repayments will have increased further since a period examined by the IMF with a cash rate now one percentage point higher than December 2022. While higher mortgage rates and lower affordability have suppressed demand, supply constraints have nonetheless contributed to keeping house prices above pre-pandemic levels in several countries and complicated central bank efforts to bring inflation back to target, the IMF said. The IMF also revealed on Tuesday it expects the Australian economy to expand by just 1.2% next year, less than predicted population growth, down from its previous forecast of 1.7%. Projections were broadly in line with the most recent forecasts from the RBA, which predict the economy will expand 1.25% next year as high interest rates cause a slowdown in consumer and business spending. The IMF expects unemployment to rise to 4.3% from its current rate of 3.7% as growth slows. Meanwhile, inflation will be higher than the IMF previously thought. Headline inflation is expected to average 4% next year, well above the 3.2% forecast contained in its April projections and above the RBA's official inflation forecast. And Australian supply chains are underfunded and poorly prepared their global peers to handle new challenges threatening to cause fresh disruption after upheaval during the pandemic. Supply chain across the country remain focused on building resilience after COVID-19, but KPMG has found that they are lacking investment needed to handle disruptions in the future stemming from inflation, freight costs, geopolitical conflicts and a rise in ESG requirements. Despite Australia's domestic and logistics industry having access to a highly skilled workforce and a reasonable quality of infrastructure assets, KPMG head of global supply chain Peter Liddell said local supply chains were below global standards due to highly manual and inefficient practices. Over the long term, KPMG expects substantial growth in business taking up advanced robotics and automation, expanding the range of activities these tools will perform across the supply chain. The firm also saw generative AI models as having the potential to transform businesses through automating and executing tasks with speed and efficiency. Liddell added that while local supply chains were withstanding current pressures stemming from the pandemic, Australia 
while behind the curve we're starting to have conversations around using generative AI models to accelerate the quality of data and decision-making. And the crisis of Qantas is set to hang over the upcoming flood of annual shareholder meetings as investors look, to, look up to dial up the pressure on companies to meet their social and environmental goals while churning out big profits. October kicks off the Australian annual general meeting season, when shareholders get a chance to question the boards of our largest list of companies and vote on director appointments and executive pay packets. Bates about how companies trade off different interests, such as meeting the needs of customers, staff, the environment and shareholders, are never far from the surface at general meetings. But this year, the rolling reputation crisis at Qantas and the demand for accountability from its board of directors is likely to bring corporate accountability to the fore. Governance experts and investors say the turbulence around Qantas also underlines the importance of social licence. The idea that companies operate with an informal agreement with the wider public that their activities are acceptable. Australian Eagle Management's Chief Investment Officer, Sean Sequira, said social licence had been a focus for all companies for some time, but that concerted scrutiny of the Qantas board had again brought the issue into the limelight. Qantas's social licence will be a focus because of all the news stories and because the company is going through a challenge with it now, Sequira said, but the focus will absolutely extend across all companies. And Australia's Competition regulator has approved Brookfield and EIG's $18.7 billion takeover bid for Origin Energy, with a deal widely seen as critical for the country's new renewable energy aspirations. The decision of the Australian Competition Consumer Commission has been seen on a knife's edge, with the regulator signalling it had concerns about Brookfield's ownership of Osnet, Victoria's principal electricity transmission network. The ACCC has highlighted the possibility that Origin could secure access to transmission infrastructure that gives it a commercial advantage, a claim denied by the bidding consortium. Brookfield and EIG offered a spate of concessions, most notably ring-fencing Osnet, and the ACCC on Tuesday gave the deal the rubber stamp, but with conditional behaviour requirements. ACCC Chair Gina Cascotlieb said the regulator remains concerned about Brookfield's ownership of Osnet, but had determined the public interest of Canadian private equity's promised investment outweighed those worries. The future of Origin is widely seen as a watershed moment for Australia's energy transition, as Brookfield promises to spend between $20 billion and $30 billion to develop much-needed renewable energy generation projects. The deal must now win favour with shareholders, several of whom have declared they oppose the value of the price offered by the consortium. To, con- to succeed, the bid requires the support of more than 75% of votes cast. Australian Super and Perpetual, both of whom have said they believe the Brookfield and EIG offer is too low, hold more than 15% of origin, leaving little wriggle room for the bidding consortium. And Virgin Australia has recorded its first annual profit in more than a decade after its revenue more than doubled as the airline prepares to relist on the Australian Stock Exchange next year. In documents filed with the Australian Securities and Investments Commission on Tuesday, Virgin said its net profit after tax was $129 million from revenue of $5 billion in the year to June 30, up 124%. Chief Executive Jane Hedlicker said it had been 11 years since Virgin Australia returned a profit, but warned the airline is partway through a multi-year recovery. Virgin's underlying earnings before interest and tax swelled to $439 million, an EBIT margin sat at 8.8%, whereas airline margins across domestic, regional and international reaching 7.4%. Virgin said margins were 5% and revenues was around $2.5 billion. By comparison, Qantas's underlying earnings hit a record $2.47 billion in the same period and its domestic margins were 18.1%, while international margins climbed to a record 13%.
Virgin said there had been a continued recovery in the aviation sector during the year, but high demand for travel and supply chains were normalising, helping to deliver some improvement in reliability and operational stability. Virgin's on-time performance has improved, but remains longer than Qantas and Jetstar, as it grapples with staffing, weather and air traffic control issues. It said it paid eligible frontline team members, who forewent bonuses during the administration period, 6.5% of their salaries in additional bonuses, totalling $26 million. And a new sustainable infrastructure fund, backed by German investment firm Patrizia and Japanese trading giant Matsui, has completed its maiden investment, committing at least $70 million towards a solar and battery development program across Australia. The APAC Sustainable Infrastructure Fund, ASIF, launched in January with a mandate to invest in infrastructure assets across the Asia-Pacific region, including solar and wind farms, battery storage, data centre, healthcare and education facilities. Its first investment comprises the acquisition of an equity stake in South Australian renewable energy company, Yes Group, and a commitment to fund Yes Group's development of predominantly 5 megawatt solar generation and battery storage projects. The portfolio is targeting a renewable generation capacity of more than 150 megawatts once fully operational, delivering green power to about 65,000 households. Yes Group was established by Mark Yates in 2004, and over the past five years has developed and built more than 120 solar farms in the sub-5 megawatt market, managing 100% of the renewable energy offtake through its Yes Energy retail business. It has also developed other renewables. And high prices of the petrol bowser will further crimp consumer spending and and squeeze profit margins as companies are forced to absorb higher input costs rather than pass them on to consumers, according to economists. That outcome would ensure the recent increase in global oil oil prices, which along with the weak Australian dollar, has pushed petrol prices beyond $2 a litre, do not flow through broadly to consumer inflation. AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver said the economic situation in Australia and overseas today was very different to when prices last spiked following Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. Then many commodities and prices were up with supply shortfalls. People wore it as they were happy to be free from lockdowns. Monetary policy was easy, Mr Oliver said. Now many other commodity prices are down. Goods prices have generally weakened. Reopening euphoria has long faded. and monetary policy is tight, which has hit households. Average weekly petrol prices hit a 12-month high of $2.11 in the final fortnight of September, rising sharply from a 12-month low of $1.74 in July. Mr Oliver expects that would add 0.3 percentage points to September quarter inflation figures due to be released on October 25th. The increases came as a global cartel OPEC, led by Saudi Arabia and Russia, tried to limit production to push global oil prices closer to US $100. ANZ chief economist Richard Yatsenka agreed that with a cash rate of 4.1% today versus 0.1% two years ago, increases in petrol prices created very different spending and inflation dynamics. An increase today is much more likely to reduce demand than stoke inflation, Mr Yatsenka said, adding, however, it was still an open question how businesses dealt with higher input costs. Businesses absorb as much as they can and it cuts profits, or they try to pass it on and it cuts demand. Either will take income out of the economy. Treasury believes as demand falls and competition heats up, businesses will be forced to absorb costs into margins. While booming consumer demand underpinned by massive pandemic-era stimulus helped drive record levels of spending during 2022, which in turn allowed many local companies to largely pass on surging input costs and wages to maintain profit margins, that will become increasingly difficult. 
The forecast economic headwinds will limit profits in most industries, Treasury's head of macroeconomics division, Dr Sarah Hunter, wrote in a briefing note to Treasury Jim Chalmers earlier this year. And crude prices surged to as high as $89 a barrel on Monday over concerns that Hamas's attack on Israel will increase tension across the Middle East and affect output from leading oil prices. Brent, the international oil benchmark, jumped as much as 5.2% in early trading in Asia before setting to trade 3.8% higher at $87.83. WTI, its US counterpart, rose 4% to $86.07. The jumps have revived fears for another prolonged period of high prices that would fuel inflation in many parts of the world. Supply cuts by major producers Saudi Arabia and Russia had pushed Brent above $97 a barrel at the end of September before prices dropped 11% last week amid concerns about slowing global growth. And the Albanese government denied Qatar Airways more flights into Australia to protect Qantas's market share and keep airfares high, a Senate committee has suggested. The committee chaired by National Senator Bridget McKenzie delivered its report on Monday after an intensive fortnight of public hearings examining the decision to refuse Qatar Airways an extra 28 flights a week. Ten recommendations were made by the committee, including a call by the government to conduct an immediate review of the decision. Other recommendations sought the reinstatement of quarterly airline monitoring reports and an Australian Competition Consumer Commission inquiry into anti-competitive behaviour in the domestic aviation market. The committee also wanted consumer protection measures developed to assist travellers subjected to significant flight delays and cancellations, lost luggage and devaluation of loyalty programs. It was recommended the government urgently respond to a two-year-old review of Sydney Airport's demand management to address claims of slot hoarding and aid with flight recovery after periods of disruption. And the four big banks have made more than 2,000 workers redundant this year as they tighten their belts in response to growing their cost pressures. Westpac has led the charge, with more than 1,080 jobs cut, according to the Finance Sector Union. An analysis of the union's press releases since the start of the year indicates the Commonwealth Bank has followed up with close to 600 job cuts, while National Australia Bank has made about 340 staff redundant since January. The FSU did not have comprehensive numbers for ANZ. However, its half-year results show that in the year to March, it reduced its full-time equivalent staff by more than 350. The statistics come ahead of the three major banks, Westpac, ANZ and NAB, reporting their full-year results next month, where cost inflation is, is expected to be a focal point for, for investors and analysts. And a stuttering energy transformation is forcing big industrial companies like Boral to temporarily shut down cement production to avoid peak electricity prices, putting at risk the nation's build-out of housing and infrastructure stock. Boral CEO Vic Bensal said he was extremely nervous government plans to build housing, hospitals and even infrastructure for the Brisbane Olympic Games were vulnerable to an energy market that was at times incentivising the nation's biggest cement maker to down tools. The revelations that one of the country's key manufacturers was regularly curtailing production in response to electricity prices comes amid calls from several quarters for Australia to set up advanced manufacturing to better tap its abundant resources of critical minerals. It also comes as the National Energy Market Operator said up calls on project developers to push projects through to construction to get Australia's energy transition back on track. One hurdle is that big industrial players, including Boral, were unwilling to sign up to long-term contracts, sometimes lasting as long as 20 years, that were required to underpin the economics of projects because of uncertainty around future supply and prices. Australian energy regulator chairman Claire Savage said there were more undeveloped energy projects in the pipeline than existing power generation assets, but calls to rapidly accelerate them must be tempered by the need to secure community support and keep costs down. And winning public support to install 10,000 kilometres of new power transmission lines in Australia is a key challenge for a shift to renewables, according to the country's energy market operator. 
The rush to shutter ageing coal-fired power plants and replace them with renewable and generation assets is already putting pressure on electricity infrastructure and upgrades are needed, Daniel Westerman, Chief Executive of the Australian Energy Market Operator, said on Monday in a speech. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's $20 billion program to modernise Australia's grid to enable greater use of clean energy sources will require a major effort to win the community's consent, he said. That strategy is based on AMO's forecast that the country's energy transition will require 10,000 kilometres of new transmission lines by 2050. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to live score groups, General Council member Rani Wynn, about the increasing opportunity for women in the sport and gaming industry. And I'll be talking to economist Saul Leslake. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from our website, leongetler.com. If you like Talking Business, please leave us a review with Apple Podcasts. Thank you in advance. In the meantime, catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. If you want to contact me, email me at leon at leongetler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.